1: everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend over in Derry, Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Seb. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Indeed. We are going to talk a bit about our conversation we just had with Andy Williams. But before we do that, Glenn, orient everyone to the ways they can reach us.
2: Course. So on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. And for anyone who wants to ask us questions or find out more about the trainings we offer, you can contact us on podcast at blenheims.com.
1: Right. And we always welcome rates, reviews, questions. Please send us any feedback. We're joined today By Andy Williams, who is an educator with over 30 years experience working in the schools, both as a teacher and as an administrator. He's based right now in Wales, in the UK, but has worked in other parts of the UK as well, throughout his career and just a fantastic conversation that covered a lot of really important topics pertinent to educators, both in general, but even in this day and time, as schools are beginning to wrestle with the challenges of students coming back amidst still a pandemic that's very much with us. So Glenn, what are some thoughts that you had after our conversation with Andy today?
2: Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation. And I suppose some of the things I'm taking away is just a reminder that Change isn't just something that happens to us as individuals, it also happens to us as collectives, whether it's an organisation or a community and the way Andy referenced that in relation to schools and what it is that individuals and leaders within a school community can be thinking about in relation to supporting that whole series of individuals and collectives in this new transition back into teaching while the pandemic is still in place. And I guess the other thing he talked about was really important was that there are people who really thrived during the lockdown thrived being away from school while there are also kids and individuals who probably found the lockdown quite traumatic and what's equally true is that there will be kids who will find the return to school very very positive while other people will find it very very difficult And just for, again, those who have responsibilities for the support and the well-being of individuals within a school environment, to be conscious of that, that nothing is ever all good and nothing's ever all bad, and just to pay attention to that and to identify by listening to the needs of an individual, whether they be expressed verbally or, more particularly, as he often referenced, was being referenced or being communicated by their behaviours and how do we understand what a child or an adult's behavior is trying to communicate to us and how do we meet that need?
1: Yeah, a great reminder to be careful of our assumptions. And so many people are assuming, rightfully so for a lot of people, that this pandemic was a horrible experience for anyone. And while it brought challenges, it may not have been traumatizing for people, maybe for most people. And Mm -hmm. uh, to also be aware that we can be open to those who may have had a positive experience throughout the pandemic for whatever reason. Absolutely. And what about yourself, Seb? What did you take away? Two big things. One, so as listeners will hear, Andy talks a great deal about the work he's done in schools, really de-emphasizing the role of punishments and rewards as vehicles for behavior management. And that is just still quite a radical idea. And it was so interesting to hear how, both just in general and sort of from a theoretical stance of how and why he's done that, but also the example, the sort of case example that he used. So I think listeners will enjoy hearing that. And the second thing is he listed several practical places where classroom teachers could implement some of the MI skills such as affirmations and open questions and giving feedback in effective ways. And as I was listening to Andy, I think because a teacher who has one of the most important jobs on the planet and is so busy, so much pressure on his or her professional lives, the prospect of learning something like MI might feel a bit daunting or might feel like they're going to change everything about what they do. And it was just a nice reminder, I think, of the content of their algebra lesson or their Spanish lesson probably doesn't need to change much. Really what we're inviting people to consider is either changing or enhancing something that they're already doing in terms of those conversations with their students, not necessarily completely overhauling everything that they do as an educator. So Mm. those are two of the things that I really found exciting to listen.
2: Yeah, again, very consistent with the idea of motivation, which is building on what people are already doing rather than simply replacing it with this new way. And uh, that's really quite exciting. For
1: sure. Well, off we go to the episode and hope you all enjoy it. So it's great to see you, Andy. And we
2: really appreciate you coming along today. And we always ask our guests at the beginning of each episode to tell us a bit about themselves and their own journey into a relationship with Motivation And if that's okay, can we start there with you?
3: Yeah, well, pronounced da. O'Gumry, good afternoon from Wales. Delighted to be part of this webinar. A little bit about me. I taught for 30 years, 15 of those 30 in inner city schools in Cardiff, Plymouth, Birmingham in the UK, and then the last 15 years in a school in Monmouth, Southeast Wales. And the vast majority of my career has been supporting culture change in schools, trying to move away from using rewards and punishments to change behaviour to a perhaps more sophisticated developmental approach around supporting young people's needs and understanding the needs behind behaviours. And it's that work that connected me with Steve Rolnick. I, I remember going to one of his introductory sessions, two-day introductory sessions, and I was blown away by it, in part because of the content of the workshop, but also in the fact that there weren't any other teachers at this event, and yet so much of my time in schools was having conversations with people about change, and so it was surprising to me that there were no teachers there, and when we dug deeper into that, Steve's workshops in Wales weren't attracting the teaching profession for some reason. So he and I connected up. but I mentored him on his book, Am I in Schools? And we struck up a very close friendship. And since leaving teaching in July 2018, I now work with schools across Wales and the UK, exploring how schools may develop a culture which supports quality relationships. So that's my work, and that has obvious relevance and pertinence to how schools now return and
1: reintegrate post-pandemic in the UK and, of course, across the world. Mm. So you can imagine a lot of the natural places of overlap between MI and some of the philosophy that you had that you brought with you to that workshop that Steve was giving, this focus on needs and how to understand and communicate around those needs and then to provide whatever the professional landscape is for the practitioner to find a way to meet those needs. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to some of that early teaching history, maybe some of the context, what age groups, subjects, anything like that. Because the idea of minimizing use of punishment and reward, that's a pretty radical idea. I'm sure it certainly was in your early years of that third year career that you described, but even to this day. And so how did you come to that? And maybe just share us a little bit about that part of the story.
3: Yeah, well, what we were finding when we were doing some research in schools and my early days, I was very interested in neuroscience and what neuroscience was saying about teaching and learning particularly and how teaching and learning was being transformed by our understanding of young people's brain development with the advent of fMRI scanning, etc. So it was revolutionizing teaching and learning in that learning was more collaborative, facilitative, where the learner was taking control of their own learning, And it was very developmental in this sense that it was focused on the young person and their ways of learning. And yet, that same research was not being applied to behavior management and to behavior development. And that, for me, didn't make sense because behavior is learned. And so we weren't applying the same approach to learning when it came to behavior. And so when there was mistakes being made in behavior... It was a call for censure and punishment and isolation and exclusion and detention. All of those words we borrowed from criminal justice, which actually wasn't working in the criminal justice system. And we weren't paying attention to what modern neuroscience was telling us around developing empathy, asking the right question, listening, being holistic about seeing behavior in a context depersonalizing behavior, it seemed to me that behavior management was still 50 years out of date. And so the work that I was really keen to develop in the schools that I was working in, both inner city and rural schools, was how behavior change and conversations about behavior change might align more appropriately to what neuroscience was telling us in and through research. Now, that's quite a lonely journey because it's a big ask. And it's a slow burn, actually, because it very much depends on culture and the mindset of leaders and teachers within that culture. So mindset change is a slow burn. And it challenges people to ask yourself a question around the purpose of education and learning and whether or not it was focused purely on cognitive outcome, whether we're just looking at exams, test marks, credentials, or whether actually there was far more to learning than exam results, and how learning is helpful for leading lives within many different levels. And in reference to COVID, how learning can be very therapeutic when we get it right. And I know that there's some people who dislike the connection between learning and therapy. But from my experience, well-being comes in the slipstream of good learning in schools. Feeling successful, having good feedback, that affirmation that comes with success okay. in the classroom. But it's affirmation that you feel within and in front of your peer group that really gives us a sense of deep well-being and acceptance and feeling of belonging within a community so i think that that was helpful within changing this school culture to one of community rather than compliance was really helpful in building mental health well-being as well as actually examination success
2: it sounds like you've been very determined and patient with what you've been doing given the nature of the fact that for 50 years, people have been used to, I suppose, what could be described as classical behavioural reward and punishment. Yes. Yes. And when you get this new information, you began to explore how can I introduce this into a well-established culture? And I was was just wondering, what did you notice and what has been working and what responses have you been getting from the schools, teachers, the leaders about these new modern best practices and what's been working?
3: Any form of change brings resistance and concern, dangers, but also opportunities. So for me, what was important at the start of the change process was that we were very aware of the data, both hard and soft, within a school community of whether or not an approach was working. So what kind of data do you look at? to assess the effectiveness of what you're doing in the school. And what was clear was, in terms of response to behaviour that relied on merit or punishments, was that actually it wasn't meeting need across the school in terms of young people's needs. It wasn't a particularly sophisticated approach to mental health and supporting young people who need to feel included And the data, both hard and soft, what the children were saying, what the staff were saying, as well as the data in terms of exclusions, was the same people were being excluded time and time again. And the kids didn't quite understand what the purpose was behind the punishment. And in reality, not many of the staff did too. So looking at the hard and soft data and starting with that and then having change conversations with people about what would it look like if we were getting this right What would we hear from the young people? What would we hear from staff? And what kind of data would we look to to see whether or not we're being successful? And thankfully in the last school I worked at over a period of 10 years, the data changed significantly. So exclusions dropped by 91%, the referrals to youth offending by 78%, antisocial behavior in the community by 48% dropped with a youth tag. And at the same time, over that period, the school had its greatest success at examinations. You have to be able to hit all of those data sets because what you can't of course do is drop exclusions through allowing inappropriate behavior to take place in classrooms across the school. So how is that achieved? Well, it's through many different and very complex ways that you achieve that culture change. And like I said, Not least amongst that is reminding ourselves of the purpose of education and why we went into education in the first place. Because I think in many schools, we've lost that. I'm not sure of the recent rate of young people leaving teaching who wanted to make a real go of learning, and they end up going into a culture which is all about examination results. And they leave. Quite rightly, they leave. So some of this is reacquainting ourselves with why we went into this profession in the first place. And that is because we love learning and learning comes in many different forms and guises and examination results is just one part of that. Another part of it is behavior change and some young people take longer than others to change their behaviors for all kinds of reasons. But it's the same in learning a language. When you look at the German department or the Spanish department in Monmouth, some young people made more mistakes than others, and they needed more support, they needed more guidance. But they also needed a recognition that you do get there in the end, but it can take many different forms and can take longer for some. So it's that going back to that recognition that all young people are different, that they all have different needs. But essentially, through good learning experiences
1: and the right level of support, young people are able to be successful in their own way. So much there to unpack. One thing I'm struck with is when you were describing the culture shift and some of those questions that you asked of yourselves as a group or as a school staff, in essence, what would change look like? Sort of a fill in the blank change. And that is such a classic MI kind of question, right? If you're working with someone who's thinking about cutting back on their drinking, it's very typical to ask early in that conversation, well, what would that look like for you? And here you are asking a very similar question, but as a school as a whole or as a school community, and what would it look like to have different outcomes, to focus more on the developmental needs as opposed to punishments and rewards? And just quite impressive at the broad scale success. Because you're right, I know in the US, so much focus is on those test scores, and rates of improvement. And I can imagine some of the most well-intentioned people in school saying, this developmental shifts, those are all nice. Those are great. If we can find better ways to connect to some of these students that are struggling. But if we're not getting the test scores, we can't do it. And so to have an intervention that meets both of those needs, which it's unfortunate to distinguish them as different needs, it's all needs within the same students, ultimately. But Andy, I was curious if you could share maybe an example, because again, I'm thinking about someone who may be listening to this podcast for the first time, perhaps, and not knowing what MI is or this idea of focusing less on punishment and rewards. How did this translate into an example in one of your schools where someone may have done something wrong, they've misbehaved in some ways, and the typical response would be a stern talking to and a detention or a suspension and how your approach was markedly different?
3: Well, I think a good example is how restorative approaches blends with MI and a more inclusive school culture. A very quick example, a young lad takes a cup from the canteen and he starts playing rugby with it. This is Wales, so we're rugby mad. So he plays rugby with this cup, throws it to his mate who misses this mug, and it goes through the back window of a member of staff's car. The member of staff is spitting feathers and very angry, and actually comes to my office demanding exclusion. The important thing to do at that point, of course, is the listening, and listening for needs in what that person's telling you, and then allowing the right time and use of reflective listening to understand the anger and the frustration, but then asking permission to deal with this event in a slightly different way. This young lad was looked after, And we know in Wales the statistics of young people who are looked after in foster care, ending up in the criminal justice system or homeless. We know what exclusion might do to that young person if we'd have pressed that button at that time. But getting the right time is important. Asking permission of that member staff for me to take a different route and then sitting down with this young lad and getting his perspective on what happened in a non-judgmental, open-minded way to just hearing his stories, listening to his thoughts and his feelings about what had happened, both before, during, and after the event. And to cut a long story short, we sat down, the young lad, the member of staff, the police liaison officer, myself, and the young lad was offered an opportunity of somebody being an advocate for them, just to sit next to them as a support. And By the end of this session, the member of staff understood what had happened was an accident, that that young person had been very nervous, hadn't been to school since the event. And then the young boy was able to listen to the member of staff explaining the impact of that going through the back window, not being able to attend a hospital appointment. That car was her pride and joy. It took some time. But if the mindset is that school is where you learn to get it right, well, then you give that time to a behavioral mistake Mm -hmm. as much as you would give time for that young boy learning how to write an essay (laughs) properly. So the time is important. The investment is important. But in valuing each member of the school community was important. And the young lad was asked, what do you think you need to do to repair the harm? Now, in normal circumstances, the punishment is done to that boy. It's not done with. So in this sense, the question allows the boy to take control of the response and the repair. And to be fair to him, he said, I need to pay the excess on the insurance and write a letter of apology. That came from him, didn't come from me. And he paid every penny of the £75 that the excess of the insurance. But he got a job to do it. And another member of staff in the community found a job for him in the chip shop. That's a success story. But what's more important is the connection between those two people was remade. And they're good friends, as far as I'm aware, to this day, even though they've both left the school. Now, there's lots in that that is am I aligned in, in terms of asking the right questions, getting the right time, but also essentially the spirit of it the mindset of it is what's key if you don't see behavior as learned if you believe that children should be compliant and obedient and that they should sit and just get their results well then you're going to be on a loser with this approach
2: what strikes me is that your approach to this episode really magnifies the point you were making earlier on about being the teacher that this was an opportunity for everyone in the encounter to learn something about themselves and about everyone else and to identify how to take the best out of this set of circumstances and that idea of using restorative approaches where both the victim and the perpetrator have an opportunity to speak and to be listened to. And I was struck, first of all, by your response to the teacher coming in, obviously very, very angry, and the first thing you did was listen. And to understand, in many ways, it reinforces that whomever we're speaking to may be considered the client. They may be talking about an event that someone else did, but it's their own needs that they're describing and you paid attention to that. And again, just the emphasis that I guess listeners will be aware of is that you've been reinforcing the importance of the spirit of the practitioner, that effort that you took to see a broader picture. And I guess that's one of the things that has been going through my mind as, as I've listened to Andy, that this idea of changing the culture is about broadening the practitioners, the leaders' perspective on what it is that has been presented in front of them and how to become more open-minded and accepting of circumstances and then approaching in a different way. And given the fact that when you first started talking about MI, you said that how infrequently you would see teachers and MI trainings Has that something that you have noticed change, or is that something that you have begun to introduce into the schools that you're in contact with, and how are teachers responding to that offer from you or
3: from other MI trainers? The appetite for MI processes and skills when I introduce it in a school's training day is huge because they immediately see the connection between those processes and skills and what is, in effect, good learning. If you could take any one of the use of open questions in learning, a key, it's a key part of a young person's ability to explore and research areas of interest. The effective use of feedback is a component of excellent learning. Affirmation rather than praise in schools. Young people have become praise junkies. So this overuse of praise in order to spark this interest in learning isn't helpful, from my perspective. But the very careful use of affirmation, not just verbally, but in books, when you're bookmarking, you don't need a page full of red pen to motivate a young person. In fact, it does the opposite, even though it's full of platitudes and praise. But a two-liner, which is on the money and which sparks motivation, is all you need in feedback. So this use of feedback is really important as well as affirmation. Evoking good learning starts with the experiences of the young people in front of you. So whatever the topic, whatever the subject You start with young people's experience and a good question will evoke a response from young people. And from that, you build the wider learning principles and concepts. So yeah, teachers are already skilled at many of those skills and processes that MI develops. And, And so MI allows for better conversations with young people, both at classroom level, but also when teachers call a student back after class, or they have what some schools call a detention, what happens in that space when teacher and pupil come together? That's the key. Whatever you want to call it, I don't like the word detention, but whatever you call that after-school session, what goes on in that space is the key. Now, my concern is in some schools that the member of staff where the relationship's broken down, is not the person in that space after school. So they've been referred to a different member of staff who does have the relationship, a heads of year, as they're called, who has a pastoral role, actually de-skills a member of staff who has a more academic role. But even that name in a school structure where some staff are pastoral and some are academic is not helpful. Because behavior and academic learning are the same. And if we divide them through our structures, our staffing structures, and we call heads of year people who deal with behavior and pastoral and looking up, well, then we're already creating a dichotomy in mindset, actually, that behavior is nothing to do with me. I teach physics. Well, you're going to struggle. Because we're not building confidence as well as competence at the point of delivery, we're removing children because of some behaviors they're displaying in their
1: learning process. Mm. That dichotomy described describe of behavioral and academic reminds me a bit of this movement in healthcare called integrated behavioral health or integrated primary care, where the idea is the, the mental health practitioner and the sort of physical health, traditional healthcare provider can work together because it's not separate. It's all about health. And here, what you're saying, it's all about learning, whether it's about calculus or not to throw a a mug through a window. And if everyone can, maybe you're going to have your own roles within the broader efforts or goals, but you're all working in the same way and towards the same direction. Andy, I have a two-part question. One is you made a distinction between affirmation and praise In the educational world. And that's something that we get a lot of questions about in trainings, regardless of what the conversations are about. So if you could offer maybe an example of praise versus affirmation and why the affirmation might be more powerful. And then I guess the second question has to do if we can sort of transition to the current events that all schools are wrestling with, at least in places in the world where schools are returning. My kids just went back to school this week. What are some things that educators should be focusing on right now, both for themselves, right? Because they're going through it just as well as the students are, but how to make that go as well as possible. Yeah, thanks,
3: Sebastian. We hear a lot of praise talk in schools, which is subjective and determined and dependent upon the teacher's move. So you're a good boy. Well done. You've done that really well. It's non-specific and it's de- dependent on the teacher's mood. And that praise can be removed very quickly so that the young person may want the same response the following day for opening the door, but doesn't get it. So it's not consistent. It's not stable as a means of supporting a relationship between two people. And it can leave some young people feeling confused and it can be destructive because if you're not getting it and you're only doing something in order to get it well then you feel a little bit bereft when that praise hasn't come from the work that you've put in and what I was finding at key stage four particularly which is 14 to 16 year olds in the girls in the school particularly they were wanting to please the teacher So they were redrafting pieces of work time after time after time, not for the inherent developmental aspect of redrafting, but in order to please the teacher who would give them praise. When that praise wasn't coming, those girls were, in some instances, self-destructing. They'd become so needy of praise from particular teachers. Affirmation is far more precise, and it's shining that spotlight on precisely what that young person did, a characteristic, a strength, a skill that they showed in that lesson or on the field or after school, whatever, they are shining the light on something that cannot be taken away. And that is allowing not just a better understanding for the young person in terms of their relationship with themselves, but also a better follow-up conversation so that the young person might ask a little bit more about what was it in that skill that led to that outcome. And the teacher then can have a far more sophisticated, far more nuanced conversation that praise doesn't allow from my perspective. And then leading on to how schools return and reintegrate this community, I think the word community is important. I said before... The restorative approach that I've been developing in schools moves away from compliance to community. So a focus on understanding and recognising that when young people and staff come back into schools together, some people in that community will have had very different experiences of the pandemic. So some, for example, they would have made some very deep connections within their families. They will have really been nurtured and nourished within those relationships, and they'll be missing that now they're coming back to school. And it was a very pleasant, a very nurturing experience. For others, of course, it was extremely challenging, and for some, it's traumatic. So all of that comes into the mix. At a universal level, as the school community comes back together, I think it's really important that we get back into the routine and the rhythm of the school day as quickly as possible. But knowing that as a school leader, this situation is still very fluid, knowing that you will need to communicate change and doing that in a timely and a values-based way is important. And as a school leader, trying to be ahead of the curve as much as you can so that you're able to communicate in a timely way any changes which are going to come to the school and to the routines and the rhythm of learning. Learning is therapeutic. So getting back to the routine and the rigor of good learning, knowing that shared experiences is going to help Developing listening across the school, opportunities for people to share their experiences within the safe environment of the classroom, but also in making sure that relationships are allowed to develop through not emphasising punishment and rewards, because some behaviours will be expansive. Developing in teachers the mindset that behaviour is a means of communication So this is behaviour is an expression of unmet need in some children. Knowing that, recognising that, understanding that leads to empathic relationships around the community. And then at a more bespoke level, providing outside support when it's needed, providing professional support from clinical psychology, educational psychology, where and when it's needed and communicating with parents appropriately and in timely fashion. But, and from my perspective, this is central, developing some support mechanisms like mindfulness, which allows teachers to be able to maintain equilibrium in the face of all of this turbulence, because the teachers are going to be frontline staff here. So senior leaders Supporting teachers by offering mindfulness sessions that allows the teacher to emotionally regulate their responses to some pretty challenging behavior from parents as well as from young people and allowing them an opportunity to talk to their colleagues. It's just as simple, talk and listen to your colleagues, provide a space after school, for short spaces, maybe afternoons, where people can talk and listen to each other without there having to be an agenda, without there having to be an outcome. And one thing that the pandemic has done is it's allowed us as schools and as school leaders to review, reflect upon what it is that's important in school. And we got carried away in the UK, I think, with competition between exam results, competition between schools, competitions between universities you go to. And actually, this Japanese word for crisis involves danger and opportunity. And from my perspective, this pandemic gives us the opportunity as school leaders to renew our vows, to reassess what's important, and to secure inclusive communities. That's focused on need and not one size fits all approaches to behavior, compliance, obedience, which I worry a school that has a zero tolerant approach, whatever that means. I've never taught him one. I never could teach him one. But I wonder, and I worry for young people returning from the trauma and challenge of COVID that goes to a school that's zero tolerant. where do you go? The school community and the culture has to encourage young people to talk and to listen to one another. And all of the answers don't come from the senior leaders or the teachers. A lot of the answers come from the other children who listen to their peers, who support their peers, who play with their peers in a supportive and inclusive environment. It's not about competition and it's not about compliance to regulations and rules. This is about community working together. It's a very optimistic message that you're offering this year, Andy.
2: And it strikes me the idea of the school as a community. To paraphrase, it, I think it is: it takes a village to raise a child, and it's recognising that the village in this instance is the school, is part of a wider community, and that within that village, everybody has a part to play yeah. in recognising that everyone else has needs as well as opportunities to support each other. It's not just the teachers supporting the kids. It's teachers supporting each other. And sometimes it'll be the kids supporting the kids as well. And it's just about how to foster. And it sounds like it's so important that is that it needs at least one individual to bring that into the mix, to bring that into the opportunity that is now being offered, that reset. You mentioned earlier on to go back to why did we become teachers and what opportunity now exists for us in this moment where In parallel to this pandemic, where we seem to be moving towards a place of healing, of recovery, of stability, how do we bring some healing and recovery and stability into our school environment as well? And I know that you and some colleagues have developed a website that I think a lot of individuals who are involved with children or schools would be interested in. I was wondering, can you tell us a bit more about Restore Our Schools? Yeah,
3: so a group of professionals, head teachers, consultants, support workers, charities that I work with got together during the first lockdown because we were concerned about how schools might need support when communities come back together. And you can access it for free www.restoreourschools.com. And RESTORE has become an acronym for recognition, empathy, safety, trauma, opportunity, relationships, and engagement. And under each one of those letters, the website gives you examples of how you may go about building relationships, recognizing what's happened, supporting senior leaders, staff, as well as parents and students in coming back together. And the work that I'm supporting schools with is around reflection. A key aspect of learning is reflection. And this has given us time for reflection. And so how is that reflection being used in schools? And many senior leaders are contacting me saying, you know what, it's time for us to renew our values and go back to where and what's important. What is important here? And are our values Shared values or values shared, that significant difference between are we collaborating around what's important here, or is this just six people sitting around a shiny table telling other people what's important? So this sense of collaboration and sharing what's important, and that's the starting point for some leaders. They just want to go back to that. Let's go back to our values. Let's go back to conversations with each other about what's important here. And then that, of course, feeds into their vision for learning for young people. But young people need to be involved in that conversation. And so do parents and so do governors and so do the staff. Otherwise, it's just a vision shared. It's not a shared vision.
1: Wow. But we'll definitely share that website on the episode page. I'm sure people will be interested to look at it. Andy, as we start to transition to the end of our conversation today, we often ask our guests, what is on the horizon for them in terms of maybe professional interests, could be personal interests that is piquing your interest right now? So what's on the horizon for you?
3: Immediately on the horizon is I've got a dissertation to hand in by October the 26th on mindfulness research with young people in schools. So that's my master's. And then um, hoping to start my PhD in January, again, looking at school culture and how we would develop a school culture that supports effective, quality relationships. And MI is a key ingredient in that work. In addition to that, I work two, three days a week supporting schools, school leadership teams, mainly around quality relationships and building connection. So again,
2: you offer a lovely example of, as a teacher, your love of learning has been manifest in your continuing development around your masters and and then on to your PhD. One of the things we also asked our guests then, and is after today's episode, if people are interested to hear more about you, what you've talked about today, or to discuss the needs of for themselves as a school or a school
3: leader, how can they go about contacting you? Email is the best way, email and my email is connect. Andy zero at gmail.com so connect andy zero at gmail.com fantastic
2: Andy, thank you very much again for your time and we're delighted that we have had the opportunity to have this chat with you knowing that schools are about to go back across the western world anyway and that this episode may be of benefit to the teachers but also the parents and pupils of returning to school. So we really appreciate you giving your time up to us and we wish you every
1: success. Thank you. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Sebastian. It's lovely talking to you. Thanks so much, Andy. This was great. Appreciate it.
0: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card.